Welcome back to History To Go, the Fort Bend History Association's brand new podcast. Each month this year, we're excited to bring you stories, interesting tidbits, and fun facts about our shared past. I'm Jennifer Farrell, and today we're going to learn about myths, lies, and rumors about early Texas history. Today, I have Allison Harrell with me as our special guest. Allison works as the Texian Time Machine and Outreach Coordinator at the Fort Bend Museum in downtown Richmond. Her program takes history on the road and brings the living history experience to thousands of school children each year throughout the greater Houston area. Without further ado, here's Allison. Hello. So today I will be telling you a host of myths, lies, and rumors. As someone who's in the historic field, I hear a lot of stories about a lot of things. And sometimes I later learn that the stories are not true or that the way I was told the story was not quite how it happened. And every time I publicly talk about any event or person, I try to double check all of my knowledge about their lives and what they were known for. Sometimes I have been told things that I can in no way check the validity of, and so I normally would not tell that story in question. But today is the day that I get to tell you my semi-questionable stories about early Texas. Brace yourself for what could be an entire pack of lies. Now, I will be following the themes of the YouTube videos that we will be releasing this month that are all about early Texas. I have arranged my stories in chronological order, but the videos are not going up in that order, so if I talk about something that you haven't heard anything about yet, keep an eye out on our social media or our YouTube channel, because there will be likely be an entirely factual video about that subject put up not at some point. So we're going to break today's video up into four parts. Part one, the Karankawa. The Karankawa are the native people that lived in the Fort Bend area at the time of the first European contact. They were a hunter-gatherer group that moved around all year to follow the food sources that they liked, such as oysters. They were rumored to be seven-foot-tall cannibals. While there is no way to actually check their height, they might have been closer to six feet, so still pretty formidable. I have also heard that they would cover themselves in alligator grease to keep away the mosquitoes and then shove small pieces of bamboo under their skin to show how brave and strong they were. The Karankawa were longbow users, and their longbows would be the same height as the user, so they could be six or seven feet tall. And they were made out of Osage orange wood, which is the same tree that many years later they would make chuck wagons out of. Now, the Karankawa projected an air of danger, and they were mostly just avoided by the European and later the American settlers that came to the area. They just looked scary. People avoided them. Now, let's get back to the elephant in the room, the cannibalism. So I've heard a number of things about why and how cannibalism might have become associated with the Karankawa. So we're just going to go through each story one by one. Story number one, they did eat people, but only sort of. So this story is that they didn't hunt people for food, but when they killed an enemy in a war situation or some sort of skirmish, um, someone maybe that was very fearsome, that was maybe revered for their abilities, the person that killed the enemy would consume a small portion of that enemy to sort of ceremonially take on their power and strength. Sort of like maybe they take a, a small piece of the liver or a small bit here and there. Nothing major and nothing for like actual consumption or for protein, but just as a ceremonial cannibalism that took place in a really controlled setting. So that's story number one. 
Story number two is the shipwreck version. Now, because the Karankawa were coastal people, if you were shipwrecked along the Texas coast, they were most likely the group that was going to find you. So the story goes that the Karankawa came upon one such shipwreck and that they found out that the survivors were eating the remains of their dead friends. The Karankawa were so horrified at this and they indicated their outrage to the survivors. The outrage in turn were appalled that the native people would be judging their actions. And so they're the ones that started the rumors that the Karankawa ate people. Sort of a, I'm not doing that, you're doing that situation. And it was also one of these shipwreck survivors that has given us the only known dictionary of the Karankawa language. It is less than 20 words long, and it was written down so many years after the fact that it's questionable in a number of ways. Now, story number three is a little bit of both. This story technically wasn't attributed directly to the Karankwa people, but it kind of might give you a better idea of how the native populations might have dealt with the idea of cannibalism overall. Now, this story follows a group of Spanish and Native Americans who were sent by Cortez from Mexico to Florida. And as these stories go, along the way, the Spanish ran out of food. And so after struggling to survive in these conditions, as they carried on, they just started eating their fallen comrades. And once again, the Native Americans in their group were horrified at this practice and threatened to leave because to them, cannibalism was for prisoners and enemies, not friends and comrades. So it's entirely possible that there might have been um, a slight tradition of cannibalism for specific purposes or in specific situations. But um, overall, it doesn't seem like they really ate people for food. Now, we may never actually know how the Karankwa felt about eating people. The things that we do know about them for certain are really far and in between because they didn't leave that much behind. Their fearsome appearance kept many settlers and explorers at a healthy distance, meaning that interactions were few and far between. Now, the last story of the Karankwa is a really tragic one because it's the last time they were ever seen. It was during the Civil War and they appeared on someone's ranch ready to take a cow. Um, a local neighbor saw them, intercepted them, and told them that they had to leave. So the Karankwa explained to them, to the neighbor, that the owner of this ranch let them have a cow every now and then, and it was a deal they'd worked out. And the neighbor told them that the owner of the ranch was fighting the Civil War and they had to go. So they left. And after that point, there's no recorded sighting of the Karankwa ever again. So we don't really know what happened to them, and there's no way for us to find out more. So it's really unfortunate and really tragic, but those are my rumors and lies about the Karankawa. Now, next up is early explorers. This story is one that was told to me by a college professor of mine when I was getting my Bachelor's of Anthropology at the University of Houston. I don't think he ever publicized anything on it, so I wouldn't even know where to start in order to verify this happened. So everyone knows that there have been six flags that have flown over Texas. Spain, France, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the Confederate States of America, and the United States of America. But if you ever talk to anyone that's super into Texas flags, you might know that there are so many more flags that have flown over Texas. The come and take it flag from Gonzales, the Fredonia Rebellion flag. There are a million flags. But did you know that for a small window of time, and purely technically speaking, the British had a toehold in Texas. 
So my professor was an archaeologist and he was doing a dig in the greater Houston area when he found evidence of something really strange. It was a pattern of raised, a raised section of earth with a row of wooden logs placed upright against the earth. Now, he didn't find the logs. What he actually found was um, different colored dirt in a specific pattern that would indicate that there had been logs there. So um, archaeologists are trained to not only know what remains they're finding, but know what shapes and um, indications they find, like if they find packed earth next to not packed earth, what those sort of things mean as well. Now, this pattern of the raised section of earth with the row of wooden logs is common for one type of settlement, English. They would build a wall out of sharpened logs and then pile dirt behind them for support and so they could see over that wall and make it impenetrable from the other side. So what were the British doing in Houston before the 1800s? Simple. They were causing havoc. There is apparently evidence in the form of letters and a few covert mentions here and there that the British sent a team of people to what is now Texas to set up a fort purely to disrupt the Spanish trade lines. They were not, not there to colonize anything. They were not there to create any permanent settlement. They were simply there to mess with everyone else who wandered through the area. Now, it seems that the Spanish found out about this settlement or this fort, and they sent an armed force out there to get rid of it. But by the time they arrived and found it, all the British had left. So we don't really know what happened, but it is fascinating to think that maybe for a brief period of time, the English lived here? <laughs> now, part three, the Mexican War for Independence. So... um if you watch the video, I, I'm the one that made the video for this particular subject, and I focus on a couple of different topics in that video. But right now, I really want to talk to you more about Miguel Hidalgo, the man who was considered the father of the Mexican War for Independence, because um, he was accused of a number of incredibly scandalous things, and I kind of love it. So part of my inspiration for doing this first podcast, first podcast all about lies, myths, and rumors, was a book that I recently found. The book is called The History of the Republic of Texas and was written by a man named N. Doran Millard in 1842. Now, this book is mentioned in Wharton's History of Fort Bend County because N. Doran Millard came to Texas around 1840. He lived and worked in Richmond, and then he headed back to England to publish this book. Now, I haven't finished reading the book yet. However, uh, Mr. Millard is an amazingly excellent wordsmith. He has just a way of weaving a tale that completely enthralls the reader. But the problem is... There are a number of lies in there. Um, one in particular, really, as soon as I read it, I realized how wrong it was, and it made me question everything else about this book. Now, something cool about the book is that it starts off telling the story of the Mexican War for Independence as the first part of the history of Texas. And in reading it, I realized I didn't know anything about the Mexican War for Independence. So I started to do a lot of research. Now, the Mexican War for Independence has many waves, many parts, and many leaders, and it took over 10 years for them to finally gain their independence from Spain. But it's that first leader, uh, Miguel Hidalgo, that is once again just 
fascinating to me and so interesting. So his name is Miguel Hidalgo, and he was a priest in a small town named Dolores, and he ended up sparking a revolution. Now, it's not this is not so much about what he did specifically, um, like towards the revolution, but what he was accused of. So the thing to remember is that in 1810, when the war for Mexican independence started, the Spanish Inquisition was still active and they had been for the previous 332 years. So, I mean, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, but they were definitely there. So the Spanish Inquisition, if you don't know, is sort of like a, it's like a witch hunt within Spain to root out anything that wasn't supremely Catholic. That's like the really short version of it. Um, the Spanish Inquisition tried to root out all other religions and anyone that might be speaking ill of the religion and all these different things. And they did horrible things to people. Now, this inquisition lasted for clearly over 300 years. So um, there were definitely waves to it and different sort of phases to it where sometimes they would horribly torture people and sometimes they were just like a court case. So in this situation, they were definitely more of a court system. They never actually got their hands on Miguel Hidalgo. And that's what kind of makes it even better. So the Spanish Inquisition had a file on Miguel Hidalgo, and they ended up trying him in absentee for all of his crimes because he was actively leading the war for Mexican independence. So not only are his crimes pretty fantastic, but the best part is that they tried to summon him to court to answer for his crimes as he's leading an army for freedom. And so the Inquisition was shocked and appalled that anyone would not only ignore their summons, but deface their publicly posted signs because they would go in and post signs in places they knew he had been or would be going about how he needed to come to court on a specific day. And people had the audacity to paint over them or to rip them down and tear them apart. So it's just kind of funny how outraged they also got about um, their their orders being ignored. But let's get to the goods of this, which is what crimes were were Miguel Hidalgo accused of? So when he was in college, he refused to continue his education beyond the bachelors of theology and philosophy that he got in 1773 because he pretty publicly considered the faculty to be made up of ignoramuses. Um, ignoramus is apparently one of his favorite words because he later accused the entire Spanish uh, government of being ignoramuses as well. Now, it's thought that one of the reasons he might have tried hard to build up a new industry or new industries in the small town of Dolores was because he'd run up a number of gambling debts because he was also accused of loving music, dancing, gaming, and women, which straight off the bat, for a Catholic priest who like music, dancing, gaming, and women seems a little bit strange. Now, in 1800, he was accused of reading prohibited books that had perverted his spirit. Um, he was very fluent in a number of languages, including French and Italian. So he'd gotten his hands on a number of books that had been written after the French Revolution about that revolution. And so he was reading things that um, the Spanish government definitely did not want him to get a hold of. He supposedly disparaged some popes, um, even accusing one of them of being in hell. He also claimed that Mary wasn't an eternal virgin, which 
for a Catholic priest, again, this was a pretty severe accusation. Uh, one of my other favorites is that a woman of good standing once confessed to living with him as his, as his concubine, and that while he, she was living with him, he told her that it wasn't Jesus that died on the cross. There was just some other guy that had died, and also that there was no hell. Now, all of these accusations were investigated by the Inquisition when they were brought up, but they never acted on it. And it's probably because the witness statements were really contradictory and all over the place, but they kept them on file just in case. So it's widely thought that they never would have done anything with this file if Hidalgo had not started the Mexican War for Independence. So as soon as he did start the war, they relooked through their files and then they promptly accused him of being a libertine, seditious, schismatic, a formal heretic, a Judaizer, a Lutheran, a Calvinist, and suspected of atheism and materialism, which is frankly quite a list of charges. And it's horribly convoluted because while you can actually be a Calvinist and a Lutheran, you can't at the same time be an atheist. And I want to point out that the Judaizer one, I think that might be in reference to the fact that he made a statement at one point saying that um, no self-respecting Jew would ever convert, convert to Catholicism because there was no evidence that the Messiah had come. So it's kind of an interesting note to see how one statement can be turned into a formal charge. Now, in the end, despite the Inquisition trying to formally charge him and trying their best to make him appear in court to answer to these charges, um, he was ultimately captured by the royalists or the, um, the Spanish, essentially, and he was executed before the Inquisition could get their hands on him. Um, there was a comment made that it was likely that he was executed before the Inquisition could get him because the people that had captured him knew that in order to bring him to the Inquisition, they would have to go through parts of Mexico that were very loyal to what Hidalgo had been trying to do. So they thought it was too dangerous to transport him, and they ended up just executing him where he was. So that's my little interesting take on the many charges of Hidal uh, Miguel Hidalgo. Now, for part four... It's supposed to be about James Long. I don't really have a good James Long story to tell, but I figured I could sort of round this podcast out with a really quick excerpt from Wharton's History of Fort Bend County. Now, um, this is one of my favorite quotes about um, James Long, and yeah, it makes me laugh. So... Having thus liberated the downtrodden people of Nacogdoches, the doctor, who now called himself General Long, went back home and recruited another expedition and started, um, started it up the dreary, uninhabited Gulf Coast, reaching that gloomy marshland called Bolivar across the channel from the northeast end of Galveston Island. For some strange reason, he brought his young wife and infant daughter to this desolate land's end. There being no enemy in sight and no more Texans to liberate nearer than Goliad, 200 miles away, the general decided to fortify Bolivar Point and built a fort and placed a cannon and raised a flag, and he renewed his proclamation that Texas was still a republic and very free. The pirate, Lafitte, who had been doing a thrifty business over on Galveston Island, was about to move out in disgust at the petty competition of these filibusters. 
Pretty Mrs. Long took a rowboat and paddled across the channel and called on the pirate who entertained at dinner. He could not be persuaded to join forces with this army of freedom. Their methods cramped his style, and a few days later, he sailed out of Galveston never to return. I love that story because I love the idea of a pirate having his lifestyle choices cramped by a group of rowdy filibusters close by and how he turned, he took all of his stuff and he left never to return. So I thought that was a fun little story to round this out. And I hope you have enjoyed this journey of myths, lies, and rumors all about early Texas. We hope you enjoyed ruminating on these myths, lies, and rumors in early Texas history. Tune in next time to learn more about Texas colonization with George Ranch Historical Park staff member J.R. Thomas. Until then, if you want to learn more, visit our website at fbhistory.org, where you'll find links to our YouTube channel, which has additional videos for you to deep dive into Texas and Fort Bend history.